This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. You're listening to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. On the show, Black North Connect, the one-stop platform for black professionals. The Vaughn Vikings play ball and new music from a 19-year-old singer-songwriter. But first, here we go again. There's a new coronavirus subvariant that's been detected around the world and has made its way here to Ontario. It's called EG5, and it appears to be more infectious than recent strains, but at this point it may not cause the same level of severe illness that we've seen in the past. Dr. Isaac Bogosh is an infectious diseases specialist. He's here to help us understand EG5 and how it may impact our health now and in the fall. Welcome to the show, Isaac, and may I just say, here we go again. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know about that, Anne, okay. but, uh, you know, always happy to talk COVID and let's, <laughs> let's maybe set a few things straight. Yeah, and, you know, I guess people are kind of feeling that way. The general consensus is, oh, no, not again. So where did EG5 come from? Well, it's been detected in many countries around the world. Of course, it's here in Canada. Some of the earlier detections were in the United States and the United Kingdom. But like anything else, we know that uh, it, it, people move, they bring uh infection with them, and, and certainly it's, it's here in Canada, um, I think it's important to contextualize this, right? This isn't anything really all that new. This is still under the Omicron umbrella. We've been in this Omicron era for about a year and a half now. We've had several different sub-lineages of Omicron throughout this time. Uh, this is yet another one. But, you know, at the end of the day, the diagnostics are the same. The vaccines are the same. The therapeutics are the same. The syndrome appears to be, based on what we know now, to be very similar. So I think it's going to be more of the same. Having said that, it's predictable, right? We know we're going to see a rise in cases at some point later in the summer, early in the fall. We know that's going to happen. Of course that's going to happen. Um, and it's, you know, that's, that's certainly on the near horizon. But, you know, we have the tools. We know what to do. We know how to protect ourselves. We know how to protect those around us. And we'll get through it like we've gone through everything else. And is it fair to ask you what its signature is, what it's what it is truly? I mean, is it highly transmissible? Does it make you feel really sick? What what is its signature? Well, okay, so if we really want to get technical, <laughs> there's a few mutations that make this slightly different from the other ones. But another way to look at it is it's still Omicron. Uh, and, you know, based on some of the data to date, it might be a bit more transmissible or evade some of the protective immunity we've had in the past. But, you know, when you take a step back and look at big picture data, sure, in the United States, there was, uh, you know, a rise in cases. And, and also, you know, of course, anytime we see a rise in cases, there's a, sadly a corresponding rise in, in hospitalizations. They saw the same thing in the United Kingdom. And of course, you don't need a crystal ball to see that that's going to happen here. I think the, the, the key issue here is like, we're not talking about, you know, this causing, um, you know, scenes that we saw earlier in the pandemic. Like, it, we're not going to see those waves like we had early on where, you know, hospitals were overwhelmed. Like, I, many people you know who work in healthcare were working in the hospitals that time, you know, ICUs overwhelmed, hospitals overwhelmed. Like, we're not going to, we're not going to see that. That's, this is not going to cause that. This is probably going to cause, uh, a rise in cases, there'll be a corresponding bump in, sadly, you know, in hospitalization, sadly, you know, we know who's at risk for more severe illness, and, and, and this is going to disproportionately impact uh, older individuals or people with underlying medical conditions. But again, I, I really don't think it's going to be anything um, 
significantly new. And I think we can expect much of what we've seen over the last year to year and a half, where we've, you know, we've had a bunch of waves in, during that time, and they all paled in comparison to the earlier waves in the pandemic that we saw, you know, between you know, March of 2020 all the way through the winter of 2022. Why do you think this, though, is making headlines right now? I honestly can't tell you. Hmm. I honestly can't tell you. Well, actually, I could, but I'd be very cynical, right? <laughs> like, you know, listen, we had the first Omicron wave started in uh, December 2021 and, and worked its way through in the through the winter of 2022. But since then, we've had lots of sublineages of Omicron. Okay, we had a BA two wave, and you know the headlines were most transmissible variant yet. Then we had a BA four and BA five wave. Headlines were most transmissible variant yet. Then we had an XBB wave. Headlines were most transmissible variant yet. Now we're going to be in uh, you know EG five. Headlines are going to say more most transmissible variant yet. Having said that, look at these subsequent waves. Wave after wave have been. You know, again, I'm not going to undermine it, right? This sadly, some people get sick. Sadly, some people end in hospital. Sadly, some people die. This is terrible. We obviously need to take steps to protect everyone, especially the most vulnerable among us. But if you take a step back and look at the 30,000 foot view, each subsequent wave has had less and less of an impact on our healthcare system and our society than the one before. So I'm not saying it's nothing. Of course, it's not nothing. Of course, we've got to take COVID seriously. And of course, we should take steps to protect ourselves. I'm just saying that you know, this is not the apocalypse coming. You know, it's interesting. We talk about protecting ourselves and a lot of people think immediately vaccinations and, and many of us, and I'm included, I'm not, I don't actually remember when I had my last booster shot and I'm not sure if I'm in line to have a, a vaccination or should I be waiting for a tailored vaccine tailored to EG5 or some other mutation or do I go ahead and get the booster? I had COVID a year ago, February. Does that give me extra protection? These are questions that are that a lot of people are mulling over right now. Yeah, so there's a couple points here. One is we know that vaccination coupled with recovery from infection provides you with pretty reasonable protection against severe illness. Okay, a couple of caveats. We don't want people to get infected. Obviously, that's the case. We just can't ignore that the vast majority of Canadians have been infected and recovered from infection. And you do get some protective immunity between that and, and vaccination. What do I mean by protective immunity? I mean, it likely protects you from more severe manifestations of the virus. It, it lowers the risk that you will be hospitalized or die from the virus. Doesn't eliminate the risk, it lowers the risk. Okay? It, what, we, what we don't see now as much as we did before is protection against infection. Okay. Early in the pandemic, when the vaccines were rolling out and the virus had mutated to the extent it is now, the, the vaccine used to provide very good protection against infection and onward transmission. They do to a much, much, much smaller extent. They still do it. It's just not to nearly the same extent as what they did before. So what can people expect? Well, if you've been vaccinated and you've recovered from infection and you get COVID again, you're probably not going to be as sick. Keyword, probably. Okay. And, and, and when you scale that up at a population level, that's why our healthcare system isn't, isn't overwhelmed as it, as with COVID as it once was. Like, remember, people might not remember, but I hope they do, right? In spring of 2021, we ran out of ICU space in the province because there were so many people in the hospital with COVID-19. Okay, we haven't seen anything remotely close to that since then. Um, next thing, vaccination. Okay, the National Advisory Committee on Immunizations uh, came out with a statement this summer. They said, everyone listen up. We're going to have a vaccine campaign in the fall. Stay tuned. We're going to have a new vaccine 
uh, or an updated vaccine, pardon me. It's going to come out probably in September or so. And, you know, people are going to be eligible, but it's really important that people who live in long-term care facilities get it, that people who are uh, on the older end of the spectrum, they set a cutoff at 65, but, you know, you can talk about that with your doctor. They said uh, people with certain underlying medical conditions like immunocompromising states and other medical conditions that put you at greater risk. Uh, these are people who should should really strongly uh, be recommended to get the vaccine. But let's see what they say moving forward. I think they'll have more clear guidelines as we get closer to that time. And what about students? You know, they're heading back to school in a couple of weeks. They'll be in indoor settings from now until the end of the school year next year. Are they vulnerable because they're going to be indoors uh, at least eight hours a day, five days a week? So, yeah, I mean, when you look at where COVID is transmitted, it's primarily transmitted in indoor settings among people who are in closer proximity to each other. Yes, more distance spread can occur, but it's primarily among closer, the the risk is higher for people in closer proximity in indoor settings, especially in poorly ventilated settings. Absolutely. Now, we have to ask ourselves, like, how? okay, so how do you protect yourself against that? Well, Will vaccines do anything? Remember, the vaccines for a shorter period of time and not to the same extent can reduce your risk of infection. But again, it's not nearly anything close to what it was earlier in the pandemic. So, you know, any protection against infection from vaccination is going to be pretty transient. It protects you against severe illness, but, but, but that's not what we're talking about. Second thing is, you know, you can have better ventilation in indoor spaces. And some of the schools have really been focusing on improving the ventilation in indoor spaces. Is that perfect? No, of course, nothing is. But it's, there's a lot of good reasons to have fresh air in school. Reducing the risk of infection is, is one of, of many. The third thing, again, always a contentious issue, but it shouldn't be. If you put a mask on in an indoor setting, you're going to reduce your risk of infection. You are. Are masks perfect? No, of course they're not perfect. Uh, do they work at a population level? They take the edge off of uh, cases and, and, and waves, but it's not, it doesn't stop it. But at an individual level, if you go in an indoor setting and you're wearing a mask and other people aren't wearing a mask and they're in the same room and there's a lot of COVID in that room, the chances of the person wearing the mask getting COVID are less than everybody else. Okay. Now, of course, you have to keep that up. You've got, if you're really going to, if you're going to be masking and you really want to protect yourself, it takes effort and consistency, but it's, at least people can make an informed decision, right? In the absence of mandates anywhere, people can make an informed decision about what they want to do to protect themselves. So those, those, are, those are really the three tools. I think the most important one, though, that often gets left out of the conversation is stay home. If you're sick, don't go to work. Don't go to school. Don't send your kids to school because um, there's no point sending them there to get everyone else infected. And that makes so much sense. All right, the WHO ended the COVID global health emergency a couple of months ago, but it has not yet declared the pandemic over yet. Is it important that EG5 is making headlines right now, getting people talking about it, just as a reminder that po- it, it's still here. COVID is still here with us. And COVID is never going to go away, right? It's still here. Of course it's going to be here. And it's going to be here long after we're gone. This is just going to wax and wane and wax and wane for an indefinite period of time. It is. That's exactly what it's going to do. And the WHO isn't really, I mean, they don't really make declarations of we have a pandemic, we don't have a pandemic. There's sort of a lot of different ways to define a pandemic, and it's not quite clear who's the one who, who says it's over. I think it's really more of a social phenomenon where we all decide, okay, it's over. And quite frankly, I think if you take a stop, take a step back and look around us, I think for many people, it is over. They're back to their regular lives. They're going to work. The kids are going to school. The kids are at summer camp. People are going to malls. There's no, they're traveling. There's no, there's no 
you know, obvious restrictions on anyone's lives. So I think for the vast majority of people, it is over. But I, you raise a really good point, right? It's important to know that COVID is still here. It's important to know that it isn't gone. It's important to know that it will wax and wane um, because in the absence of, you know, ma- mandates, like people need to be aware of this so that they, they can choose to make, to take steps to protect themselves and those around them. And listen, well, some people aren't, aren't going to do that. Fine. Some people are fine. There's no shame. There's no stigma. I would never stigmatize anyone for wearing a mask or, or anything like that. I, you know, I, I think, People can take steps to protect themselves. I think, uh, you know, that, that's, that's all, that's, that's great. Um, and, uh, but to your point, it is, it is important that at least people are aware so that they can make informed decisions for themselves. Hmm. Dr. Isaac Bogosh, thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Infectious diseases specialist. I really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Many have suggested that this is the worst wildfire season ever. Kevin Frankish now with the forces of nature. This week's evacuation of Whitehorse is well underway because of wildfires. An entire city forced from their homes. And now another Canadian city, Kelowna, under threat. Maui, an island decimated by wildfires, accelerated by hurricane winds. At this point, it has been a historic summer of devastation across North America and parts of Europe, but historic may be on its way to being normal, thanks to climate change. And with this change must come a change in our way of thinking. Professor Eric Kennedy is a professor in the School of Emergency Disaster and Management. His work looks at the human social dimensions of hazards and disasters and uses a holistic approach. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, here we go. We we have these fires. And, and as far as we're concerned, or as far as some people are concerned, it's climate change. It's dry. Um, we, we, you know, we have lightning. And there we go. That's what caused it. End story. But you're saying no, not end story. Yeah, anyone who gives you a simple answer for wildfires is, is unfortunately making things a little bit too narrow. It's all of these things together multiplying on each other that lead to the catastrophic events that we see today. So, yes, climate change absolutely plays a role in the fires that we've seen across Canada and around the world. Climate change can make things hotter and drier and windier. But we also have things like um, the management of our vegetation. So in Hawaii, for example, we've seen the spread of a lot of non-native and invasive grasses that are very flammable and lead to conditions that we saw there in Maui. We also have changes in how we build our communities and where we're living and how expensive the homes are. And all of these things multiply on each other. It's really those causes coming together to be bigger than the sum of all of their parts. There's also something to be considered, and I think about this often, and that is wildfires quite often are supposed to happen. It is nature's way of of clearing forests to allow for other vegetation to, to move in. So we're literally fighting nature. Yeah, that's especially true here in Canada. When we talk about the boreal forest, for instance, that covers so much of our country, This is an ecosystem that has evolved to depend on fire. It needs fire for its very existence. It requires fire to come through and to 
clear out pests and to allow for germination of seeds, to allow for reproduction of the plants, to allow for a healthy ecosystem. And so this isn't true everywhere. There are some landscapes that are not um, so dependent on fire, but for so much of Canada, we are dealing with landscapes where fire is not just a reality, but it's a necessity for a healthy environment. How do we tell the difference and, and how do we manage it in such a way that we're not stopping nature from doing what it's supposed to be doing? That's such a great question. I mean, what this really comes down to is having those hard conversations ahead of time. We have to be developing effective fire management plans before the spark is on the ground and deciding the goals and the purposes that we're managing the fire for. So in some parts of Canada, those fire management plans mean that actually we should be letting fires burn, that we should allow them to um, go through particular areas for environmental renewal and for protection of those ecosystems. And in other places, we will have to fight them and extinguish them. The key is that we make those decisions ahead of time, engaging with science, engaging with community stakeholders, and making these strategic plans before the fire is on the ground. Unfortunately, we have so, you know, so many different groups that have their hand in fire management, whether it's planning, whether it's actually fighting them. You know, we do have the argument, well, there's climate change and climate change is making things drier and it's hotter out. We're, there are more storms. And we saw this in Maui with, with the, the hurricane, mm -hmm. which essentially, you know, made this fire much worse than it actually had Absolutely. to be. So... We have that. We have other people who are just saying this is a natural occurring event. We have other people who are, 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 are saying there is no such thing as climate change. And so how difficult is it for us to manage future fires when, we, when we're being pulled in so many different directions and so many different ideas and thoughts? Yeah, it, it's certainly a tricky situation. I mean, we absolutely need management that is based on the best available science, that takes seriously the way that climate change is shaping the future of fire, that understands what, I mean, we would call it a fire regime, what kind of fire should be occurring in that ecosystem, um, and takes those scientific pieces seriously. But we also need new strategies for how we adapt to a world with more fire, right? We have to be looking at developing our communities and adjusting them in ways that allow them to be more resilient when fire events do occur and understanding that we might not be able to put every single fire out, particularly in the case of these fast-moving, wind-driven events. So what are we looking at for, let's say, next year and the years to come? Is this... The new normal, do you see any signs where we are prepared to better manage future fires? Yeah, fire is a reality on this planet. And even if we don't have um, a major fire season here in Ontario next season, we will see a major fire season elsewhere in North America and elsewhere around the globe. That's a simple reality, and it's made worse by climate change. And so we certainly have to get ready for that. It means, as I said earlier, getting our communities ready. And there are things you can do to make your house and your neighborhood less likely to burn down in a fire event. But we also have to think of some of the other impacts of fire. So this year early on, remember that smoke we had? That smoke is really bad for human health. Um, and so we need to be making adjustments to 
get our communities ready for that too, looking at air purification inside of your home, for example, as a way of making sure you're not suffering from the health impacts of faraway smoke. Is it an inevitability then? Is it just something we're going to have to learn to live with? We absolutely have to learn to live with wildfire. And we can try to influence it in some ways. There are going to be those places where we will fight it. There will be those places where we actually use good fire to make bigger, worse, catastrophic fires in the future less egregious. So there are things we can do. We, we will continue to fight fires. We will use good fire to reduce its impact. But we are going to have to get used to the impact of smoke on our communities and to not imagine that we can have total control over the situation. Many times, wildfires are simply too big and too powerful to be able to fight. Professor Eric Kennedy, professor in the School of Emergency Disaster and Management at York University. Thank you so much for this. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Glenn Perkins is next with a flash rain and flooding. It seems almost every summer, communities in York Region and across the GTA in low-lying areas experience flooding from torrential downpours. York University professor Usman Khan is an expert in water resource engineering, including flood risk assessment. Professor Khan, welcome to the feed. Is my observation correct? Hi, thanks for having me. Yes, I think we're seeing major flood events every year across the country. And there's a few different reasons why this is happening. And I think it really points us to change the way we're trying to address this problem. Um, I think we need to rethink how we deal with floods in urban areas. Most recently, the Ottawa area was hit by a severe thunderstorm that brought heavy rain, power outages, and turned roads into rivers. Does it come down to bad infrastructure, or are there measures that can be implemented that would prevent this degree of flooding? I wouldn't say it's bad infrastructure per se, uh, it could be old infrastructure uh, that requires maintenance or upgrading, but it could also be a change of circumstances. And by that, I mean either more urbanization, more intensification of our cities, meaning that the infrastructure that was installed 20 or 40 years ago is no longer suitable. And it's also possibly due to climate change. If we're getting different types of rainfall, different amounts and different at different times of the year, the infrastructure that we have built and designed can't cope with these changes. And so for the event in Ottawa, one of the things that I've been speaking about is we need to start thinking about and implementing a concept called sponge cities. How would that work? So the idea behind sponge cities is we need to make our cities resilient to water rather than resistant. And that distinction is we need to have areas that we allow to floods that can act as sponges during rain events to reduce the risk of floods. This is in contrast to our current approach where we have a lot of concrete, a lot of surfaces that don't allow water to penetrate through them and carry water really fast from one point to another. We've basically replaced our natural water cycle with these hard surfaces and uh, a network of underground pipes to carry this water which I don't think is doing its job anymore. We need to supplement this infrastructure with these sponge technologies. With the construction of new subdivisions here in York Region, a number of the developers do have ponds that they use as part of beautification for the, the region. Would that help these situations to have a water gathering area? 
Yes, these ponds are essential uh, for managing runoff uh, in subdivisions. However, I think we can go one step further. These ponds are designed to collect water from further upstream areas in the subdivision that's generated after it rains. So basically, after rainfall, you have water falling on your road and parking lot and then flows into these ponds. The idea behind a sponge city concept is to reduce the amount of water that's generated on your road after it rains. Rather than allowing this water to flow over ground, we want it to stay uh, where it's generated, basically flow through the ground and either be absorbed into the ground or held for a small amount of time and then released later on. I'm thinking back a few years to the Toronto Islands. They were submerged for weeks. If Toronto was a sponge city, would they have been spared? I mean, it's hard to talk about that specific event, but yes, the idea behind a sponge city design is to have, I mean, obviously reduce those types of floods, but also allow and build areas that are going to be flooded and therefore protect other more important areas. So you direct water to certain areas that can be flooded to protect other areas. Have you proposed this idea to municipalities? And if you have, what's the reaction been? I've done research to try and figure out where and what type of these sponge technologies could be installed in Toronto for current climate conditions, for future climate conditions, for current levels of density and for future projected uh, levels of density. One of the things that I do in my research is to show that we can't do this on a piecemeal basis. It can't be certain things installed once a year, etc. We need to have a long-term plan, a systematic approach of installing these types of technologies across the urban area. I think it's fair to say that we do need to do something because we are seeing a change in the environment, whether it's heat or flooding. I agree. I mean, this year has been a real eye-opener, I think, for everybody. We've seen catastrophic floods and fires across the country uh, and across the world. Certainly, we need to think about not just future mitigation in terms of emissions and climate change, but also adaptation. How do we build and rebuild our communities to be more resilient to these types of disasters? What do you think it's going to take for officials and developers to go the route of a sponge city? Is it going to be more disaster, more heat, more flooding, that finally somebody's going to wake up to this idea? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I think what I would say is that we have the technology and the expertise, but we can't wait for some point in the future where this becomes normal. I think we have to start now. And so my message is every time we're you know, redoing a sidewalk in some part of the city as part of other maintenance, I think every opportunity we have to install sponge technologies, we should take it. I don't think we should wait to have some sort of master plan and start doing it in the future. I think we can start doing it as soon as possible. York University Professor Usman Khan, thank you for joining us today on The Feed. Thanks for having me. After the break, coming up next on The Feed, Black North Connect. Do you have a story idea for The Feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of The Feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region.
Welcome back to the feed. Black North Connect is a platform that matches job postings to black professionals' skills and goals. Sounds straightforward, but the need is great and the stats are shocking. As of July 2020, black Canadians were nearly two times more likely to be unemployed than non-minority Canadians. Half of black employees here in Canada report facing discrimination when it comes to promotions. And university-educated black Canadians earn an average of 80 cents for every dollar earned by their white peers. Empowering the next generation of changemakers from the black community, that is Black North Connect's broader goal. Dahabo Ahmed Omer is the CEO of Black North Initiative. She's our guest now on the feed. Welcome to the show and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Dahabo, why was Black North Connect started? Well, look, the reality is that there are so many black professionals who are incredibly talented, who have an incredible amount of expertise and experience, but unfortunately do not have the opportunity. And on the other side of that gap, we were noticing that Corporate Canada was telling us, well, we can't find black talent and we have opportunities, but we can't find them. And we were there in the middle trying to figure out how do we bridge this gap? How do we make sure that we are able to connect black, incredible, talented professionals with incredible corporations who are ready to take them on and who who understand what equity means? And so Black Notes Connect was born and we've been doing incredible work for the last couple of weeks. And there are hundreds of candidates now on the system and there are over 3,000 jobs specifically for black people and black professionals. And so when we talk about bridging the gap and when we talk about equity, policies and procedures, this is what we mean. How do we create a platform that's dedicated for communities that have been marginalized and have not been given opportunities for decades and decades? And so very, very proud of the work that we're doing with this program. So Black North Connect is more or less a one-stop shop. What is it exactly designed to do? How does it help? So it comes in three phases. We've just launched the first phase. The first phase is specifically for recruitment. And so black professionals are able to go on this platform for free. And I want to make sure that I mention that because a lot of times some of these platforms, there's a cost associated with it. And for those communities who unfortunately don't have an employment that allows them to be economically uh, uh, free, uh, paying for, for a platform like this is, is really causing an incredible amount of barriers. And so the platform is free. Black talented professionals can go in there, create their profiles, talk about who they are, talk about their aspirations, talk about what they're looking for, and be able to present themselves in the best light possible. A lot of times you don't get to see that just from a resume. And so the way that the profile is built allows you to see the person for who they are, but also for their potential. On the other side of that, you have employers who are able to also create their profiles and talk about who they are, what their company mission and mandate is, what kind of talented candidates they're looking for. And so, you know, you it's, it's almost like dating, right? But you're, 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 you're going in there and getting to know people and they're getting to know your company so that you see if there's a future there, right? And so the platform really allows for that human approach to this kind of work and recruitment. A lot of times recruitment is done in such a structured manner. We're taking that out of the process and we're allowing people to get to know each other and get to know their companies uh, as, as intimately as possible. And so that proximity to, 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 to potentially a job is just an incredible thing, right? We've heard from candidates how excited they are. They've never seen a platform like this. They're excited to see that it's dedicated and focused and it's targeted recruitment for people uh, from the black community. And, you know, we're proud to see to see the, the success so far. And it's only been a couple of weeks. I can only see what happens in a year or two from now, right? The opportunity to develop and grow and learn and be able to give uh, an opportunity to, these, to this community is so great. And so 
it's it's incredible to see the amount of employees that are in the system now uh, using it every single day, connecting with people. Um, and then, you know, the phase two is going to be amazing. We're going to be able to have internships and mentorship opportunities for black professionals and young black professionals as well. And then phase three is going to be scholarships, right, and bursaries. People can go in there now and be able to get a job, be able to go to school, be able to get development opportunities all in one place. I mean, it, it, that doesn't exist. And and I say that with, with a, a great amount of certainty, and, and I think I'm very... You'll hear me say this all the time. I'm incredibly proud of the Black North team for building such a, an incredible tool that's going to break barriers upon barriers. And this is what we mean by systemic change. When we talk about systemic change, this is what we mean exactly. And based on need, and at the beginning of this interview, I mentioned some of the startling statistics. So let's talk about those. As of July 2020, Black Canadians nearly two times more likely to be unemployed than non-minority Canadians. Black women are disproportionately affected. Half of Black employees in Canada report facing discrimination. 39% of Black Canadians say their organization has the mechanisms in place for major promotions to be bias-free. University-educated Canadians earn more than an average of 80 cents for every dollar earned by their white peers. That's pretty discouraging stuff. It is. It is. And I mean, you, you see these individuals who are incredibly talented and who have edu- who are very educated and who have the willingness and the commitment to be able to do an incredible amount of work but don't have the opportunity. And because of that, and then we know this, right, when you have a job, you have a purpose, you have a paycheck, you're able to take care of your family, you're able to be stable. I mean, having a job has such an amount of impact across the board, right? You're healthier, you're happier, you have dignity, there is uh, pride, there's so much that comes with being employed, being someone with a job, getting up in the morning, going to work. There's such an incredible amount of pride that comes with that. And we take that away from a community. What is left? And so what we want to bring is the humanity back into humanity. We're trying to bring that back to give people a sense of purpose and sense of belonging in these companies. We want them to see themselves grow in the company, be there. Sometimes you hear that. I've been here for 10, 20 years. Most black Canadians cannot say that. Unfortunately, they don't get promoted. They end up leaving. They don't get a job. And so I think what we're trying to do as much as we can here is to be able to give people an opportunity to have a purpose. Dahaba, what's your own story? What was your experience in the workforce and, and dealing with discrimination and, and that sort of thing? Or, or, or was that your journey? It absolutely was. I think it's the journey of very many uh, communities uh, within the Black community. I think, you know, my journey is not any different than most of us. I think I... It just couldn't. It just couldn't. It just couldn't go. I just couldn't land. I just. I thought, am I? Am I not smart enough? I haven't done enough. Did I not study enough? Did I? And so it starts to impact your self-esteem. It starts to impact your mental health. You know, and we know that racism is a social determinant of health. That has been proven and has been in very many different research. But I just thought I wasn't good enough. You know, but I was. I was so good enough. I was more than good enough. And you know, I think even in my recruitment within Black North was so different. The board of directors wanted to get to know me. I had all these interviews, dozens of interviews with all of the board of directors, and they asked me critical questions about what I wanted, what I saw myself doing in five years from now, what it meant for me to be part of this organization, what were my fears, what are the things that I am scared of, what keeps me up at night. Like someone, one of the board of directors asked me that, what keeps you up at night, Dahabo? 
And I thought, this isn't a traditional interview. They really want to get to know me. But they, on the other flip side, they asked me incredible questions about what would I do in this instance? What does it mean for me to be able to lead an organization of this nature? If I had control of everything and I had capacity and I had resources, what would I do? And I thought, this is incredible. I have, and these are the heads of banks, the heads of the biggest organizations out there, Fairfax Financial, CIBC, uh, you know, there's West Hall. Like, there's so many of these incredible leaders who just spent time with me to get to know me because they cared enough to do that. And so when I realized that my own recruitment was different, I realized, okay, I wish more black people had this experience because it's an incredible experience. It's still grueling. You're still nervous. All of those things are still there but you know that they're doing it right and they're doing it for the right reasons and they, you know that they want to get to know you as a person and not just as a number, as a candidate, right? And so I was just really proud to be part of that process and I'd never experienced that before. Back before this, it was very, very different. I wouldn't be able to get to the door, but, um, but look at me now, right? Um, who would have been able to say that 10 years ago that Dahabo, a uh, refugee from Somalia, would be the CEO of Black North Initiative. I mean, that that's just something that would be impossible, right? But I think we're bringing the possible back into that. And so I'm, I'm very proud to be part of this organization leading it, but also being able to extend that to others who have never seen this before either. And so um, you can tell just by my voice how excited I am, but also yeah. just how proud I am of the fact that we can do that for someone else, that we can realize a dream or support the realization of a dream of another Black talented professional, right? There's so many of us out there um, we're just bringing them to the spotlight now. That's all we're doing. I am so moved by what you've just said. Black North Connect, how can people find out more? Uh, blacknorthconnect.ca. Please go on their website, register if you're a candidate, put up your profile, start looking for jobs, start connecting with employers. Same thing for employers. You can go to blacknorth.ca on the employer side and start to create your profiling and, and start to, you know, create a workforce that's truly equitable. That's what the platform is, 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 is designed to do. And so I hope more and more people sign up. We're seeing the, the sign-up uh, numbers increase every day. And that's, that's an update that I love to hear every morning from my team. But um, I hope that people go on the site and, and, and just browse and get to know and start to create their profiles. That's how we start the journey to success. Dahabo Ahmed Omer, CEO Black North Initiative, the creator and the motivator when it comes to Black North Connect, you and your team. Thank you so much for sharing your journey. It means a great deal. Thank you, and thank you for giving me a voice today. When we come back, sports and entertainment in the region. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Next on the show, Jim Lang takes us out to the old ball game, softball that is, with the Vaughn Vikings. Easily one of the best kept sports secrets in York Region this year has been the Vaughn Vikings U13 Triple A Girls softball team. These amazing young women have been competing and winning in games and tournaments all summer long. To talk more about it, I'm thrilled to be talking to their coach who has built a special program, Christian Zandwick de Haas. Christian, how are you? I'm fantastic. Thanks for having me here. It's a pleasure. I, I saw you practice the other day uh, on a hot morning, and these young women work so hard. It, it, it was the passion, the dedication, but the fundamentals. They were doing a lot of little things in softball that I expect with women much older. 
yeah, these girls have been putting in work for uh, four years. Some of them have been with me. Uh, the the team has come together in uh, into completion in the last year. We brought in uh, three new players that we're really excited about. Uh, we've been focusing on those fundamentals and development of these players with those with those core basic skills and then building out from there right from the beginning. Now, how did you do it through the pandemic? Because I talked to so many friends who coach kids in soccer, softball, hockey, and it was tough to keep their attention through that. How did you do it? Uh, we built an amazing program uh, in conjunction with our parents. Uh, we did Zoom practices. We actually connected a few times in person in uh, in fields where we stayed extremely social distance and uh and just and like yelling your instructions essentially yeah we were uh we were really far apart from each other and just trying to maintain that team unity as much as we can and keep the girls as close as we could we did some we would do uh two hours of practice on zoom and one hour of fun activities whatever it might have been just to keep the girls entertained and engaged you know uh, we just had a report in the feed not long ago with a problem with young women in canada leaving sports in that 12, 13, 14 year old age group. And most of your girls are 12 and 13, correct? Yes, they are, yeah. And watching them, they had a passion for the sport. They competed, but they also supported each other. And they seemed so into it. How, is it you, is it them, is it the parents? Or how did that all come to be? Did they have this kind of dedication to softball? Uh, the girls themselves are extremely dedicated. Uh, this group of girls particularly, um, they've chosen themselves to be involved in the sport all year long. I encourage them to participate in secondary sports. They, a lot of them do play secondary rep sports, and in the offseason, I encourage them to do that. Uh, so at that time, softball becomes their secondary, and they'll come to practice when they're available. Um, I want them to be athletic. I want them to be engaged in other sports. I want them to want to come to practice. Mm -hmm. If I've been around rep sports for, for too long, with going back to myself with my own friends, and uh, I see people quit because they're just, they're burnt out. They've yeah. done it too much. And when I listen to interviews from guys like Wayne Gretzky saying that uh, kids should have two sports, I'm going to listen. Well, Wayne growing up played baseball and lacrosse in the summer, and his his parents didn't let him touch his hockey equipment till next season. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason for that. If, if the girls want to be at practice in the wintertime, uh, I'm happy to be there. I'm happy to offer that time to them. So we, uh, we try and keep it fun. We try and keep it light. But like you said, we focus on those fundamentals. Indoors. Uh, in Canada, our facilities are, are on the up, but uh, we're still using small spaces like school gyms, and uh, we bring in a small turf patch, and then we do simple things like uh, daily ground ball work, uh, fielding ground balls on the knees and stuff. Just developing those core basic fundamentals is, is probably the most important part. Now, I played a little fastball and baseball as a kid, and hitting a fastball, softball, is different than hitting a baseball. And you have seen these, some of these young women can absolutely crack the ball. I mean, you've got some real skill on this team. We have girls that are elite. I would fully expect that uh, you might see a couple of these names appearing on uh, Team Ontario, potentially Team Canada, and maybe an Olympic team one day with all hopes. Uh, we've got a couple girls that um, they could probably hit home runs now. At the, pro uh, the When they get older, they're going to play at 225 feet. We've got at least four girls that could launch the ball out of that park right now maybe more that's incredible and now was this something that gradually happened or was there a moment you're like wow i got a few of them that can they're special we could see that raw ability from the beginning um we've been fortunate that these girls have been dedicated and and willing to learn they are all amazing amazing players that are dedicated in school they're dedicated on the field and they're committed to learning they're open to criticism 
they receive coaching very well, every single one of them. And we have a great team policy of communicating openly with the coaches and the parents and the players. We'll have discussions openly with the parents about what we're working on with their player. And uh, we'll talk about we'll talk about it with the athlete too. We'll, we might we, we try not to focus on the negatives after the games, but uh, it definitely becomes a topic of conversation at some point. Without the ability to talk, we can't grow. Uh, and Christian, I noticed that you had a pop school break when I visited you. The girls just they're elite athletes, but they're young girls having fun. Oh yeah, the fun is the most important part. If they don't have fun, they're not going to come back. We want them making friends. We want them having a great time. When we go away on the road. Uh, the, our moms and uh, our team manager does a fantastic job of, of planning group activities and outings to make sure they're engaged with each other and uh, we're not breaking off into little clicks. We want team unity the whole way. So I guess you've heard a lot of Taylor Swift this summer with the girls. <laughs> One or two times. <laughs> as much as the girls are getting a lot of this with the sort of that bonding this summer, all the wins, all the tournaments, what are you getting out of it? I get the opportunity to live a dream uh, and be beside my daughter th- through this uh through this wild adventure it's uh it's a privilege and an honor to be a coach of this team uh i take it very seriously um leadership is really important to me and uh these girls are an incredible group of athletes i'm getting emotional thank you no you know, i they uh they mean the world to me um, i got a really difficult job and um these girls help keep me centered they mean the world to me because the Vaughn vikings it's an impressive sports organization both with softball and baseball and the parents involved. And that's something, and you alluded to the parents, that you can't be a good organization in amateur sports without support from the parents. No, we have, uh, we've been blessed with an absolutely fantastic group. We're a, we're a, we're a hometown team. You know, we don't have corporate sponsorships. We're fortunate enough that uh, the, the parents, some of the parents on our team have family businesses and, and they're able to contribute towards these girls' future. Uh, we, we collect as small of a stipend from the players as we possibly can. Uh, we really do need everybody as, uh, beyond the financial part. We need everybody pulling the rope in the same direction. You know, player decisions aren't easy uh, when it comes to playing time and those kinds of things. Everybody wants their daughter to be the star all the time, and and, and I'm I'm no different, right? I'm a coach yeah, and I'm a dad, and I have to find that balance. And uh, that's where we need everybody contributing. We need the message at home to the players to be positive all the time. Uh, we need the conversations in the car to be positive all the time. It, baseball's a difficult sport. You know, you fail over 70% of the time and you're great. You're you're a Hall of Famer. Yeah. And uh, these girls are 12 years old and they need a lot of support to get through that and navigate that. And and the, the mental part of the game can, can be very heavy, particularly for certain players and positions like pitchers and catchers and those kinds of things. The, the more often that you, you have an opportunity to potentially make a mistake, the heavier that burden can be. So we really need everybody together on the same page and and we've been blessed this, these families have we've stuck together side by side for four years through covid through ups through downs they changed the age group for these girls they've been junior players and underdogs for three years straight hmm. and this year is our year because i think christian about this age group because our daughters are older but remembering when they were that age of our daughters uh, social media self-esteem friendships, um, the drama that goes around school and then sports and that, there's a lot for them to negotiate. It's probably harder for these kids than it's ever been for kids. Yeah. You know, they they have more influences and, and the ability for, for people to see their mistakes out in the open where 
in our in our age, Jim, we got away with it, right? We yeah. could do something stupid, and, and no one would ever know. Only my teammates saw me fall. That's right. right. <laughs> That's right. You know, so the, these girls have pressures that uh, that are far beyond ours. Uh, they come to them a lot earlier than we ever had to deal with, and and I'm proud of these girls every day. They make the choice to come to practice. They make the choice to be elite athletes. And, and they put in the work, and they deserve the credit and the, and all the kudos that come their way. The Vikings were in Windsor this past weekend of the Provincials. After winning their first four games of the tournament, the Vikings ran into a tough team from LaSalle, and the Vikings ended up in fourth place. But despite the finish, Coach K and the Vikings had a remarkable season. They won many tournaments this year, and they certainly have a lot to be proud of. Shaliza Bacchus with the voice behind Dance With Myself. Canadian music is definitely on the come up and there are so many artists contributing to that. And Sophia Fercasi is definitely one of those artists and she joins me now. How are you? <laughs> Thank you. I'm good. How are you? I'm great. We're so happy to have you along with us. And you've been very busy. You've been very busy over, the last, true. <laughs> over the last year or so. You just got off tour with Amanda Marshall. I did. And how was that? It was an incredible experience. Um, I genuinely had the time of my life. So many firsts um, and a lot of great connections made. It was uh, like a 10 out of 10. 10 out of 10. <laughs> Love that. And and that was my next point. I mean, were you even getting any sleep at all being on tour? Well, I would say it depended on the night, depended how late everyone got out of the venue. Typically, um, it's different for every tour, but for hours, we drove through the night. So we would okay. finish a show, pack up, get on the bus, drive through the night to the next location, and then wake up at your next venue, um, which was great. I mean, it, it meant not a lot of sightseeing happened, <laughs> but that's okay. Um, I I, I slept pretty well most nights. Um, I would just say the late the late nights. I'm a bit of a grandma, if I'm being completely I, honest. I feel you so on I went that. from like 11 p.m. bedtimes yeah. to like 1, 2 a.m. And so I was really feeling it. <laughs> I, I feel you on that. I think it just gets to a point where you're like, nope, I need to go to bed. No, that and that's the truth. Sorry, yeah. I know we're having fun, but I'm leaving now. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> Love. That. I need that on a t-shirt. Yes, perfect. I, need I know we're having fun, but I'm leaving. <laughs> We've got two uh, big songs out right now. I want to get better now and dance with myself, which we love mm, here on the you. region. And you just released a new song yesterday. I sure it's did. Dress shirt. Tell it us about that. Dress shirt. Um, I am so excited about this release. It's one of my favorites so far. Um, it's very different, I would say, just than a lot of the music that I've put out in the past. Just kind of the way it sounds, the production vibe. Um, I've said this before, but it's a little bit more of like a pop R and B hybrid. I would say. Um, and it's just really fun. I've never really written a song like this before. It's a little bit um, a little bit gushy, a little bit lovey, which is normally I, I like to write like empowerment anthems. Yeah. And so this one's a little bit more vulnerable in terms of content. Um, but yeah, really, it's just about kind of letting um, letting yourself feel um, and not being afraid to kind of say, hey, actually, I do feel passionate about something or someone. Um, and I think that's important to acknowledge instead of sort of squashing those feelings down. Yeah, it definitely is important. So you said that this made you feel a little more vulnerable. 
Yes. What was that <laughs> songwriting process like then, being a little bit out of your comfort, comfort yeah, zone? Yeah, totally. I would say even just like not even the content of it, but the way that I wrote it, the phrasing of it, everything was out of my comfort zone in terms of songwriting. Um, but it was, I would say it was cathartic. I've said this about my music before. Like my songwriting process feels very therapeutic. Um, for me, That's it's kind of like writing in a diary or a journal or something like that, except for then thousands of people listen to my diary. <laughs> <laughs> so um so that's the difference but yeah no I think for me it was uh it was nice to to say some things that I felt like I needed to say um and put it into something that felt kind of productive and like it could end up becoming a part of someone else's life as well and maybe helping to express something that they felt personally. Um, that's always really important to me when I'm writing. And that's what you want to do with your music in totally. general. I feel like that's what a lot of artists aim to do. You know, you want to connect with your listeners. Yeah, 100%. I love that for you. So this song, we can stream it anywhere? Absolutely. Anywhere you want. Anywhere you want. It's, <laughs> it's available. Terrestrial and Sophia, if our listeners want to follow you and follow along with your journey, where can we go? Um, I am on all the platforms. So Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, anywhere you want under just my name, Sophia Fricassi. So you can check me out. Um, oh, TikTok too. That's important. How can we forget about TikTok? How can we forget in this day and age? (laughs) Um, so yeah, anywhere that you, uh, any social media platform of your choosing, you can find me there. Right. (laughs) And we can be friends. We are excited (laughs) to hear more music from you. Thank you so much. Congratulations on all your success and we hope to hear from you soon. I hope to be here soon. And here we go with a snippet of the brand new song by Sophia Fercasi. This is Dress Shirt. But I've never been more serious About trying to keep it all unserious About laughing when I scrape my knees About not handing you the keys To the parts of myself that I don't understand That I don't want to bend About letting you shake my If you missed any part of the feed, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you so much for listening.